Welcome to the Elm City Church Podcast. As a community of people who are trying to practice the way of Jesus together, we hope that these messages inspire and equip you for the journey of faith in everyday life. So every year as we enter the Christmas season, I talked about this last, last week and last, actually the last two weeks, we encounter a familiar story. We encounter a story that we've known, that, we, that we've often heard over and over again, the story of Christmas. And every year, you know, in church and other places, you might hear things like, Jesus is the reason for the season. Who's ever, you heard that phrase before? I think almost everyone's heard that phrase before. And while it's true, Christmas is about so much more than just celebrating the birth of Jesus. It's more than just, let's get everything really decorated nice so that we can throw Jesus a killer birthday party on Christmas Eve. It is about so much more than that. It's about the miracle of the incarnation, of God becoming a man, of taking on flesh, laying aside his divine rights, coming humbly in the most vulnerable way in a baby, fully God, fully man, mystery of all mysteries. But as I said last week, uh, often we can come into the Christmas story and forget that it's part of a much bigger story the scriptures are telling. You know, you can't just, I think you miss even the beauty of what's happening here if you kind of forget what, what comes before it. You know, I said this, if you, look at my, if you look at my Bible, this part right here, the big fat part, these are all the stories and everything that comes before Jesus' birth. There's a lot that has happened. And so for us, I think, to fully appreciate God's character and the promises he's fulfilled and what it means that Jesus is the Messiah, we can't kind of remove it from the overall flow of the story. It is, it's, it's an incredible, uh, I say not an incredible piece, but really the story is of the scriptures. It's one unified story that's leading to Jesus and then moves, and, and moves through him. So what I want to do is... Uh, show you a short video called the messiah and the reason why i'm showing it to you is it does an incredible job of kind of tracing the story of redemption from the garden all the way through and it helps you situate both the the beauty of the story of of christmas but then it's giving you a picture to the future for the hope because at advent is in a season where it's not just a time of looking back it's also a time of looking ahead and so i want to show this to you um, to help you, again, orient where we are in the story. There's this crazy story at the beginning of the Bible. We have Adam and Eve, and they're in the Garden of Eden. And everything in this garden is great. It's exactly as it should be, except there's this one tree that they're told by God not to eat from because it's dangerous and it will kill them. So that's it. Uh, avoid this fruit tree and we're fine. Right. It seems pretty simple. But in this garden, there's a snake, and it starts telling a different story. It says that if you eat of this tree, it's not going to kill you. In fact, it's going to make you become like God. And Adam and Eve, they believe the snake, and they eat the fruit. And because of this, the goodness of the garden is tragically lost, and evil and death enters into God's good world. Now, why is there a talking snake in the garden? I mean, 
this thing is a problem. Yeah, it's very strange. And even more strange is the fact that the Bible doesn't say why or how this thing even got there. It just presents the snake as this creature who's in rebellion against God and that wants to get other people to doubt God's goodness and lead them on a path towards death. And so whatever this snake is, it's the source of evil that pervades our world and our lives, even still today. But there is some hope because right here in the story, God makes this really interesting promise to Adam and Eve. That someone is going to come in the future, a son of Eve. And this guy's going to come and he's going to crush the serpent's head and destroy evil at its source. However, during this battle, the serpent is going to bite this guy's heel. So it's like a mutual destruction. Yeah, it's this very strange but beautiful promise. And it's just left hanging there until the next key moment in the story when God singles out this guy named Abraham and says that through his family, goodness and blessing is going to be restored back to all of the nations of the world. And as we follow this family, we get to one of Abraham's great grandsons, this guy named Judah. And he receives this promise that a king is going to come from his line and that the whole world's going to follow this king and he's going to bring peace and harmony and there'll be lots of food and wine and milk and vineyards and it's going to be awesome. The first king that we meet from the line of Judah is a guy named King David. And he's a hero. Maybe he is the snake crusher. But it turns out that David is infected with the same evil as the rest of humanity. He never crushes the snake, just the opposite. However, God makes a promise to David that this king is going to eventually come from his line. But as you go on in the story, one by one, each generation of his sons, they're just total chumps. They give in to the snake, they choose evil, they go after money and sex and power and following other gods. Things get so bad that they run the nation of Israel right into the ground and the big bad empire of Babylon just takes them out. And so now there are no more kings to even fulfill this promise. So it seems like the whole plan is lost. But during these dark days, there's this crazy group of guys called prophets. And they just kept talking about this coming king and reminding us of the promise that he'll come, he'll defeat evil, he'll restore the garden. Now, one specific prophet, Isaiah, he tells us more about why this king is bitten. Isaiah says that the promised king receives this wound because of humanity's evil, and then it kills him. But then all of a sudden he comes back, and Isaiah says it's because he suffered this wound that he can now become a source of healing to other people. But the Old Testament ends, and the snake-crushing king that everyone's been talking about never shows up. And this is why, when the New Testament begins, it introduces us to Jesus of Nazareth, not as some random guy, but as someone who comes to fulfill these specific ancient promises. Yeah, we learn that he's from the line of David, Judah, and Abraham. And he goes around Israel announcing that the goodness of God's kingdom is here now. And he begins confronting the effects of evil on people by healing them, by forgiving them of their sins and evil. Many people are now believing that this is, in fact, the promised king. But Jesus began telling his closest followers that he was going to become king and bring peace by taking the full effect of humanity's evil into himself. The fatal snake bite wound. Exactly. And so it seems like the serpent wins. And this story actually would be a tragedy except for what happens next. Jesus rises from the dead. And now Jesus has the power over evil and death for himself. And so the rest of the New Testament is then making this claim that Jesus' power over evil and death has now become available 
to us to begin confronting the effects of evil in our lives. But even still, death and evil are a real problem in our world all around us. And so the story of the Bible ends by describing this future day when Jesus comes back and he finishes the job. He destroys the snake once and for all and he restores the goodness of the garden here on earth. So just a few things there. (laughs) But the reason why I really wanted to show you that was, again, it is into this story that we situate ourselves. It is into this story that we encounter a young, seemingly insignificant girl named Mary who knows all of the stories of the kings, who has been, you know, part of the celebrations and the longing and the prayers for the coming Messiah, for the waiting, the longing for God to come and make all things right. And then, out of nowhere, she's visited by an angel, and she is given this crazy greeting, saying, Greetings, O favored one. Greetings, O one who the, who the Lord God is going to bestow his grace upon. You are going to be the mother of the Messiah. I mean, could you again, could you imagine that? What that was like for Mary? So as and so this is week two of a three-part series that we're doing called Merry Christmas. Uh, as we've been looking at Mary and her and kind of her story through Luke, uh, as both an, an example of faith to follow, and then I think as sort of an underrepresented character in the Protestant church of uh, someone who God has chosen to use in, in, in a special way. So I want to read to you. Luke chapter 1, verses 39 through 55. And this is both Mary and Elizabeth, uh, they're, they're greeting, they're coming together. And then also a, a very famous poem that uh, Mary wrote uh, in response. So this is, this is how it goes. In those days, meaning the days after Mary was told what her task was going to be, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And as she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leapt in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in in, in my womb leapt for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Man, what a great line. And blessed is she who believed there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her by the Lord. And then Mary said, this is Mary's song of praise that's, called the, that's often referred to as the Magnificat. She says this, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. And he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the rich with good things, and the rich he has sent, he has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. 
He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. So Mary's response, this song of joy, this Magnificat, is rooted in this story. As she, as she exclaims, you know, the wonderful things God has chosen to do through the fulfillment of his promises to me and to Abraham. But spectacular things are happening. The world is changing. God is on the move. And those who are in the know at the moment are two people with very humble backgrounds, Elizabeth and Mary. So as we read, Mary, after hearing the news, arose and went quickly to see Elizabeth. And we might, because most of us aren't experts in uh, the geography of Israel, we might think, oh, they just went, you know, she just went to Canaan. But this was about a 70 to an 80 mile journey. Probably would have taken her at least three days. So she basically, she hears the news about Elizabeth and does the equivalent of traveling to Boston without a car. Like that is what, what, it, what, is, what is happening here. And what Luke does here in the encounter between Mary and Elizabeth and the encounter between the babies in their womb is genius. Because right here, this is a literary bridge that's pointing forward to the rest of the story. Because when John the Baptist hears Mary walk in, it says this, when the sound of your voice came to my ears, the baby, who was John the Baptist, leapt for joy. You know, John's job in life was going to be the one that pointed people to Jesus. He was the forerunner to come and proclaim the Messiah was coming, and the Messiah has come. And it's as if right here, what Luke does is have John, even from the womb, jump with joy and go, it's him, it's him. That's, that is what uh, Luke is doing here in the story. But there are really two big things that kind of jump out to me from what Elizabeth says here in her part of it. The first is the humility she shows in being chosen to be a part of God's plan. The humility she shows at being chosen to be a part of God's plan. She says this to, to Mary. Why is, it, is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord, the mother of the Messiah, should come and visit me? Hear, hear, hear the humility there of someone who's just awestruck that God would choose to use her. There's no sense of pride. There's no sense of like, well, of course he's going to use me because I have been really devoted to Sunday school. You should see how good I am at tithing my mint and my herbs. I have followed the law, so I'm a perfect candidate. God, good choice. No, she says nothing like that. In humility, she says, basically, why am I so blessed to be a recipient of this grace? And I think in the church and for a lot of us, that would solve so many problems. If we entered serving the Lord with this level of humility of like, wow, I cannot believe that I get to do this. I cannot, what a, what a privilege it is to be chosen, not just in you know, salvation and redemption, but I get to be chosen to be an instrument of God to be used for his glory. Why am I so blessed? That would, that would solve, I think, so many of our, of our problems and develop such a deep sense of joy in our faith. But the, the second thing I, that jumps out to me is a highlight of another major theme that runs through the first two chapters. When she says, blessed is she who believed that God would keep his promise. Because at the heart of faith is the belief that God will do what he promises. 
the heart of faith is the belief that God will do what he promises. And at times, it is not going to seem like it. You showed the history of Israel. Like, a, a king was supposed to come. A king was coming, and they're in exile for 400 years. How's this going to happen? There's not even the, 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 we don't even know if the Davidic line is still in play. Probably what they're wondering. The heart of faith is, the, is understanding and the belief that God will do what he promises. And Jesus is the proof that God keeps his promises. Jesus is the proof that even no matter how much we mess it up, we cannot get in the way of God keeping his promises, which is so encouraging because that's the type of God you can trust. That's the type of of God you you can give your life to, the God who always keeps his promises. And then the next part, Mary's poem, the Magnificat, the, called the Magnificat, it's, it's Mary's response to what has happened to her. And I, I was using my imagination this week, trying to put myself in her shoes. You know, again, try to put yourself in your, it's what you're supposed to do with a lot of the stories. Try to put yourself in their shoes. Think about how her world has been turned upside down. Think about the uncertainty that was ahead of her. And let me just read you again what she said. I was thinking, how great would it have been, before I read it, when she goes to visit Elizabeth, the confirmation she would have received? There had to be a part of her that's like, thank God I'm not going insane. Thank God I'm not crazy, that I didn't just dream all that stuff that just happened. Like, this is real. This is happening. Elizabeth is with child. She knows. Look at what God is doing. So listen to, again, their response of a faithful but overwhelmed teenager. Listen to just her faith. She says, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior for he has looked down on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm, and he has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel and in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Isn't that beautiful? Mary is speaking again here of the upside down nature of the kingdom of God. That the oppressive mighty and the rich that are oppressive God will throw down while the humble he will lift up. And she also highlights how God's mercy is for those who fear him in a healthy way. But this is a, God's mercy is for those who fear him. You know, we cannot impose our will on God. It's laughable to think that. You know, if God is really who he says he is, in the story of the scriptures too, the thought that we can impose our will or tell God what to do or try to direct him is insane. It's laughable. But God's mercy, his covenant love is for those who fear him. And Mary understands the fear of the Lord. And it's a healthy fear that's cultivated by an understanding of knowing who God is. 
I love how C.S. Lewis helps us understand what that means in the Chronicles of Narnia um, when talking about how the, the Christ figure is Aslan, and someone's like, oh, he's a lion. Is he safe? And Beaver's like, of course he's not safe. He's a lion, but he's good. I love that. Like, of course God is not safe. He's God, but he's good. He's good, and his character is on display. And we know it, and we know what he is like, and he keeps his promise. So as I was kind of reflecting and just on some final thoughts on Mary's poem, there are two lenses I want to run it through. And the first is, what does this teach us about God, and what does this require of us? We've been doing, uh, in, in life group and some of our studies, a discovery Bible study type thing where you look at the scriptures, and it's a really easy way to try to run them through and understand them, of say, what is this, what is this teaching us about God, and is, there some, is, is, and is there something we're called to respond to? And what this teaches us about God is it teaches us about God's character and his great love for people. That God is a God of love and justice and righteousness. That he cares for the poor, the downtrodden, and offers salvation to all. And it reminds us that God always fulfills his promises. You can rest assured in that. But this is also a challenge to us because I think it requires us, uh, it challenges our faith. You know, are we truly willing, like Mary, to trust in God's goodness and his plan for our lives, even when it might divert us from what we thought we wanted to do? Are, are we truly willing to trust God when, in a sense, the path he takes us on is not one that we would have chosen or would have wanted? Again, Mary probably was not, as a little girl praying, like, you know, Lord, you know it would be awesome one day if I, you know, became a pregnant virgin of the Messiah and, like, threw my life upside down. Please make that happen. I'm going on a limb and say she probably wasn't praying that. But God changed her plans. So are you willing to be obedient to God's will even when it's difficult? Even when it might mean taking on a great burden? And remember, we talked about last week, why was Mary able to do that? She was able to do those things because she knew she was the recipient of God's grace and her God was with her. Her confidence was not in herself. She wasn't like, all right, Mary, let's do this. You can do it. Over and over, it's, I'm the recipient of God's grace. God has bestowed his mercy on me. My God is with me. Therefore, I can move forward. And obviously, you know, we're not going to be asked to do the exact same thing Mary did. But if you want to follow Jesus, you're going to be required to put your faith into practice. If you want to follow Jesus at parts, it's going to be hard. And it's going to be challenging. It's going to take you out of your comfort zone. And it's going to force you to rely on him. And that is really the, that's the promise that Jesus made. He says, I will be with you every step of the way. But if you want to follow me, what you need to do? Put aside yourself, take up your cross and follow me. But we can do that confidently knowing that we can trust God. Because he keeps his promises. He says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And Jesus, again, is the embodiment of that promise that started in Genesis, that will finally be fulfilled at the end. We can trust that God is good even when we don't understand it. And like Mary, we can be able to proclaim this, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. We hope this message has been impactful. For more information about how you can connect with Elm City Church, visit elmcitychurch.com or follow us on social media. We'd love to help you take some next steps.